You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, today I am joined by Joy Dahl. Joy is the Chief Academic Program Officer at the Nebraska Healthcare Collaborative, Vice President in Academic Programs at Sync Health, and an Associate Clinical Professor in Occupational Therapy at Creighton University. Joy, you're very well-versed in interprofessional collaboration, and you directed the Center for Interprofessional Practice, Education, and Research at Creighton. We're very happy to have someone with so much experience and expertise on our show, and want to focus our conversation today more on your work related to health information exchanges, social determinants of health, and projects related to primary care and rural care. But thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure. And I'm always excited to support our profession, especially the American Occupational Therapy Association. We appreciate that a lot. And right off the bat, Joette, I have to ask, what is a health information exchange? Yeah, great question. Many clinicians do not know about health information exchanges, but they're a critical infrastructure for healthcare. So as you know, and most people know, we moved uh, paper healthcare records to electronic health records. And when we did that, we didn't always think about the concept of interoperability, meaning that systems that hold health data can transfer or share that data. So a health information exchange is typically either statewide or regional. And data sharing organizations, their electronic health records feed into the health information exchange. And this is a value because it allows us to centralize health data. So, for example, if you go to an emergency room at one health system and then you go to one across town, the provider or a clinician, when they're looking at that record, are not able to see that you've had an a current emergency department visit, typically if it's outside of their own EHR. So what allow HIE allows to do is do patient matching and then develop a comprehensive patient record of everywhere a patient accesses care. So the goal is to have a longitudinal health record that's available to both patients and healthcare teams to help family members, patients themselves, and clinical teams make really informed data-driven decisions about healthcare delivery. Thank you. What, what's it like uh, working in a health information exchange? Can you talk to us a little about your role? Yeah. So my job is really exciting because I get to work with academic partners and researchers and health systems to look at how we take all that health data and translate it to improve population health. So, for example, I'm working on a project uh, that involves medical respite, which is where individuals who are homeless get discharged but um, aren't really healthy enough to be in a shelter or be on the streets. And so medical respite is a program that makes a bridge for their health care. And so we're actually using health data from the health information exchange to justify the need. And we saw on 450 homeless individuals in 2020 that they had over 2,000 readmissions. And we presented this to the homeless shelters. We, they told us that often they immediately call the ambulance right when someone is dropped off at a shelter because they do not have the capacity to help that person and they can't manage any of their health issues. So we see an opportunity right there to data share, you know, discharge plannings for the benefit of making sure patients are safe and that a discharge plan is actually appropriate. So that's just one example of how I work with community partners and researchers to take the data. The rest of our company, Sync Health, is really focused on data connection and making sure that organizations are data sharing. Uh, we do this not only for the health information exchange, but through our state's prescription drug monitoring program, which actually 
includes all pharmacies in the state of Nebraska reporting all prescribed medications that are dispensed every day. So it's, um, and patients cannot opt out of it. It was actually put in place for addressing the opioid epidemic, but it's a great medication reconciliation tool. So we look at also reducing burden and how do we get tools like the prescription drug monitoring program right into the electronic health records so prescribers and other clinicians can look at what medications people are taking. Uh, our company is really focused on you know, reducing burden, promoting interoperability, which is where systems connect together. So I'm lucky to really work on the translation part, but I'm part of a bigger team that's really working on really transforming and trying to, you know, address some of these barriers that we have with data sharing and healthcare, obviously under really strict privacy and security along with that as well. Health information exchanges are, are still a, a new concept to me, but they sound so interesting and so helpful from a practitioner perspective. I think everyone would say that the more information or data they have on a patient, the better and more comprehensive care they're going to be able to provide. And then on a population level, the more data or information you have, the more easily people are going to be able to address population health. Um, so it sounds like it makes a lot of sense and is really important. What motivated you to get involved with health information exchanges and begin to contribute to the improved exchange of healthcare information and public health data? Yeah, so that's a great question. So in my previous role, I had an amazing opportunity to help design a clinic from an ambulatory care facility from the ground up with a team of amazing individuals. And we built the clinic to be an interprofessional learning laboratory. So we were doing really innovative care models. We had occupational therapy coming out of the clinic and primary care and PT as well. And so one of the things that we did from the beginning was we wanted to look at metrics. So like, how do we show this care model has value? What do the healthcare organizations care about? And so when we were, we did our study and we were actually able to show a cost avoidance of $4.2 million on 276 people in one year, which is published in the Annals of Family Medicine. And then we actually have in review a publication that we've sustained and replicated that uh, you know, cost savings and obviously population health outcomes were reduced emergency department visits, hospitalizations, and improved hemoglobin A1C, which is a type 2 diabetes indicator. So I became really passionate because we could only study our patient cohort in our own electronic health record. So I don't actually know, and it's a significant limitation in our research methodology, what if they access an emergency room elsewhere in another system? So I approached and found out about our health information exchange and then um, I just was like, hey, do you want to partner with me and do a study? So they were like, yes, we're really just getting into the sphere where we're interested in looking at the data for the purposes. So we actually uh, did a study with HIE data that I did with occupational therapy students at Creighton. And we looked at low back pain and imaging. And we used health information exchange data. And we found that 51% of imaging for low back pain was unnecessary and wasteful. And, you know, you think from a policy perspective, you could take that to policymakers and say, hey, maybe don't pay for imaging, don't reimburse imaging, reimburse intervention like occupational and physical therapy that actually can help people with their low back pain. So I'm really interested in not just like looking at data and doing research, but how we actually translate that for human good. One of the ways we were able to translate our data from the health clinic was that changing ED visits and hospitalizations affects bottom line for healthcare organizations. So we were able to propose that that clinic move to a values-based payment system and it was the first out of 151 clinics to start to do values-based payments. 
And so how do you also take that and make a business model and a business proposition for how you transform healthcare to make it better? Because we're so nuanced and affected by policy and cost in ways we don't even realize on a daily basis. And we really can't improve healthcare delivery unless we deal with the macro issues that are influencing healthcare. So I'm super passionate about those things, had the opportunity to go and advocate for legislative bill 1183 in our state, which made the the PDMP available for research purposes, uh, which is our prescription drug monitoring program. So I'm just really passionate about that. And so after doing some of that work, I approached the organization and was like, hey, do you think that maybe I could join and, and do, do more good than we're doing now? Uh, and luckily, they, they thought that was a good idea. And so I moved over to the company last April, and I have learned so much. I'm still learning so much every day. And, you know, people don't think of occupational therapists. So we really have to advocate for ourselves. So I'm on a rural telehealth national quality form committee. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really focused on physicians and that's really important, but there are occupational therapists. I just had a conversation with one last night who has started a tele-rehab program that's very successful that she started pre-pandemic and people are now knocking on her door to say, how'd you get that done? And so we have a lot to offer, but people don't think of us. So we need to get occupational therapy practitioners into quality and population health so that we can be a voice because we won't get on primary care teams or we won't be in values-based payments unless we're there, we help people think of us and we show our value. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you are emphasizing that point because I, I absolutely agree. There's so much value that occupational therapy practitioners can bring to all aspects of healthcare, but we're still not breaking into to all those advocacy and, and policymaking type roles. So thank you for, for setting an example and, and trailblazing away um, into this one. And I understood or heard through the grapevine, Joy, that, that Sync Health is working to develop a social determinant of health tool that could be used across care environments. Can you first share with us what social determinants of health are? Yeah, great. So social determinants of health are really, to me, where you work, live, and play, and we're all socially determined. So you know, where we live influences that. And I think the pandemic has made that more, much more explicit than we acknowledge in the past. I mean, I know even in our own family, this is actually the first week since last February, my daughter has gone to school for five days in a row. And so where we live, the school district has been, uh, you know, very wanting to protect the population, which I can respect. But if I had gone to a different school district or live in a different neighborhood, my daughter would have been going to school uh, since August, right? So there are things you don't have control over because of where you live and where you work. And, and so social determinants are really those factors and also acknowledging that a lot of health is not happening in the healthcare system. It's happening where you live, work and play. And so social determinants of health are really looking at what are those factors? And then you get into issues of equity. And I really talk about equity rather than equality because equity is recognizing we don't all start in the same place and that really to provide optimal care. It's probably unique to the individual. And that's what's so great about occupational therapy. We're natural advocates for equity. So I think social determinants of health is a really natural space for us to be in. And I think the role for us will only grow there. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show 
improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. And how will this tool developed by Sync Health be used to track social determinants of health and used to improve health outcomes for patients? Yeah. So what's really wonderful about Sync Health is that we really view health in a really broad way. So we have our health information exchange. We have our prescription drug monitoring program. And then we realize, you know, there's also important data around social determinants of health that's not being well tracked. You know, we know there's health disparities. We know there's issues. So we are going to be working in seven states. Right now, it's called a Nebraska Unite Nebraska. And we have a vendor we work with and we're building out the platform. So essentially, care coordinators make a referral and it goes into the system to community-based organizations and it becomes a closed loop. So the, the community-based organizations then report back whether that referral was addressed, whether they couldn't handle it and had to go to another community-based organization. So what it will do is, and it already is, I mean, we're seeing that the most significant need in the pandemic since we kicked off in September is housing and behavioral health. So that will help us know where to allocate services. What are the issues? And also what I love about the tool is it recognizes that health happens out in the community, that community-based organizations do a great job of helping people find housing, address their food insecurities, and that the healthcare systems really need to connect the continuum of care to those organizations. And as an occupational therapist who has really valued community practice and practice in a lot of non-traditional settings, for me, it's really connecting the population health initiatives that are driven by healthcare systems, looking at risk scoring and values-based payments with that community-driven approach about what do patients need and what organizations in the community really connect those dots. I love that. Excuse me. Joy, how would you recommend practitioners begin to consider social determinants of health more in their practice and when they're working with patients? Well, one would be to understand what their population health initiatives of their organization are. How do they address social determinants? There's lots of social determinants of health screeners out there. So who's doing the screening and making the referrals? You know, one of the things I think for occupational therapy that we see that is around SDOH is, you know, durable medical equipment and access to things. You know, we might want someone to have a ramp, but no hospital is going to go build a ramp for somebody, right? So you know, who in the organization is handling those requests and how do we get involved in that or make sure they understand that, you know, access to some of these, especially housing accessibility, has a significant role. And Medicaid, you know, they just released a letter talking about the role of home visits. And I sent that to AOTA because I think, you know, it really starts to show that OTs can play a role in starting to make recommendations or connect community organizations that address some of these issues. So, we can really assess what the actual SDOH is and supplement that. So I think this whole field is totally emerging and becoming grow and growing. And one of the things that is kind of stimulated that is the addition by CMS of Z codes. You can actually code for social determinants of health now in electronic health records. So, you know, there's interest around that and how we understand what the social needs are. And that will help us develop what interventions and where occupational therapies role is. The opportunity is there isn't really a clear role. So our profession has an opportunity to step up and say, here's what we can offer in that space. 
And I, I like how you mentioned this is kind of an emerging area of, of practice. I think it's so important to consider social determinants of health and learn more about health information exchanges in order to holistically treat patients and, and really practice at the top of an OT license and, and provide the type of care that, that practitioners really can to make, to make a big impact. But I also think, I know, at least for me, I need to learn a lot more about health information exchanges and social determinants of health. Where would you recommend I or some of our listeners go to learn more about these important aspects of, of OT and, and medical care in general? Yeah, so a couple of things I can think of. Um, one, the literature has stuff on health information exchanges. Uh, Julie Malloy and our CEO here, Jamie Bland, and I have um, a policy perspective accepted to AJOT that's going to talk about some of this. So hopefully that'll come out and be a resource. Uh, Tracy Erlein at Thomas Jefferson University and I um, put out the new position paper on primary care, and we really wrote it to recognize the diversity of practice models. So that's that hopefully is a resource that people can use. Um, find out if your state has a health information exchange. I mean, starting there, it definitely is something I didn't really know about and understand and kind of fell on an accident. So, you know, but there are definitely opportunities. Another great place is to look at the website for the Office of the National Coordinator of Interoperability, also known as the ONC. They talk a lot about health information exchanges, what states have them, and what are the best practices. But they're relatively a new tool, and they really emerged when we saw that electronic health records were not data sharing and they were being kind of chosen by health systems, um, very vendor-based. So the federal government is highly invested in helping connect data and finds that of value. I mean, we see this, NPR had a piece this week about vaccine distribution and how it's really challenging because of our disparate data system. So I think we're seeing more and more that this is an important conversation. So those might be a couple of resources you could look at to learn more. People can also just reach out to me. I'm really happy to talk to anybody about it, talk about my journey and um, help connect them to an opportunity. And I think the other thing is like dream big. There aren't clear rules. There isn't like a lot of opportunity to say, hey, here's where I fit in a health information exchange. So I think being innovative and inventive and being bold and saying, hey, I think this would benefit from an OT clinical perspective. Uh, is really an important thing for us to step up and do. And yeah, it takes someone being a little bit fearless and and going into your uncomfortable area. But I can say from being here that I definitely think our profession brings value to this work. Thank you so much, Joy. And you mentioned that you were a part of a paper published in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy um, titled The Role of Occupational Therapy in Primary Care. Um, so I'd like to kind of shift focus and, and talk about primary care for a little bit. How would you describe OT's role within primary care? So right now, I think it's actually hard to describe and quantify because it's really contextual. So one of the things that you have to start with is how reimbursement and billing is done in a healthcare organization. When we started looking into primary care for occupational and physical therapy because we wanted to do it at our clinic, most of the people we talked to were doing it and weren't billing. You know, one of the things is to really understand, is there an opportunity? And then how, what would be the business case? And that's probably going to be very unique to the context. And so understanding that's important. And so it's more about asking the right questions than really looking at that. One of the things that our therapist needed is a MPI number to move out of the clinic. Uh, you know, we had to deal with licensing of the outpatient space being different than the primary care clinic. So 
I think there's some great folks doing primary care, and there's actually a primary care collaborative that's being uh, led up by Dr. Piatek that I think is open to anyone. We meet uh, once a month and we talk about you know what's going on in the field. And I've just found that it's incredibly diverse and very contextual, uh, which gives a lot of opportunity to design the program that works for your patient demographics and what kind of reimbursement. But I don't think we have a very well clear defined role. And that's why we kind of wrote the primary care position paper to realize that there isn't one way to deliver and provide primary care because as care moves from volume, fee-for-service to value, hopefully the primary care opportunity will grow, but we have to be seen as a valued member in that primary care team. And so, you know, there's a lot of work to people, you know, just trying to try to move into those areas, make a recommendation, think about occupational therapy. And I've done a lot of talks about this, and I just tell clinicians, find out what the teaming activities are. Do they do huddles? Do they have care coordination meetings? And find out if you can attend. Most of the time, nobody's going to tell you you can't attend a meeting and then start to show the value of what you bring. I remember being in a Department of Family Medicine meeting and a physician said to me, you know, I've been practicing for 20 years and I don't know what occupational therapy does. And this is a very smart and well-respected physician. And I'm sure it was just never safe for them to ask that question. We still live in an environment where our providers, the people that refer to us, don't know what we do. So I think the first step is to just get in the door and start to share people because once they find out the value and you've helped a couple of their patients, it's really not hard to sell why we're an important part of the primary care team. Absolutely. And what what are some of those factors of occupational therapy and primary care that do make us such a good fit for this setting? Yeah, that's a great question. So one, I think we're natural team players. We really want to collaborate with people. Uh, we're creative and we're good problem solvers. And so I think all those things really bring value. We can help with behavioral health, with chronic disease management. And there's been some great work. Diana Feldhacker and I wrote an SIS article about, you know, the role of primary care OT and diabetes. Dr. Piatek's done some great research in that area. And I think you know, really it's it's resilience. It's being able to go and advocate. One of the things that I think is a win that we did is most of our clinics, when I started working with the health system, were called physical therapy, even though there were OT and speech involved. And we got the signage changed, you know, like just so people even know we're there, right? I always tell people you got to sometimes say the same thing over and over until the right person listens. You know, you have to have resilience and grit to just say and keep banging on that wall. Like, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about the patients. And if they can benefit from occupational therapy, you know, we need to advocate to that for their needs and, and for our profession, too. So I think just being bold and, and doing that, being flexible, being willing to kind of see whatever walks in the door. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, team problem solving in primary care, especially when you have people with chronic disease management and then social issues one person cannot solve those problems. And many views and diverse perspectives of an interprofessional team bring value. And one of the things I remember from our team meetings was we had talked about taking some of the professions out when they weren't involved with the patient. And somebody said, you know what, though, like, I really appreciate the perspective that occupational therapist brings. Like, I kind of want him in here, even though he might not deal with the patient, because he might bring up idea that helps make me better. It makes the care plan better even if he's not delivering that piece of the care plan. And so to me, that was one of those like signature moments where it's like, wow, 
we have made our value proposition clear. And so, you know, that doesn't happen in one day. You have to keep going and keep going back and keep showing the value and then let the work speak for itself. The other thing I'd say is start with the willing. Find the people that want to advocate and want to bring you in. You're never going to convince everybody that you have value as a profession and there are always people that doubt. So start with the willing, go there, and then do your best to show them that what we offer makes the difference in patients' lives and helps them be a better clinician as well. Absolutely. It, there's so many aspects that are Im- important skills for practitioners to develop and really use when when breaking into this setting, including working as a team, being bold, are a couple that you mentioned. You also mentioned that that physician who hadn't really heard or, or wasn't really aware of everything that, that OT can do. I, I kind of want to ask you, what's the best way you've heard the role of occupational therapy shared with others in an interprofessional team? So I tell people that OTs help patients with anything they want to do every day that's meaningful to them. And so, you know, that's really based on the patient encounter. And that's kind of, I keep it short and simple. And then, you know, I also let the work with patients show the value. The best story is not going to be told by you. It's going to be told by your patient and it's going to be told to them that the difference you made in that person's life, and they're going to tell their provider. If someone goes to a physician for low back pain, The physician will prescribe a medication or make recommendations, but they're not an expert in, you know, exercise or positioning. And so when you can show you bring value to that and help that patient have a better quality of life, like that sells itself. There's not much we have to do at that point. So I really think like keep it short and uh, then let the patient care speak for itself. Thank you very much, Joy. I want to ask as well, how Could listeners who want to get involved in primary care do so? What are some of the first steps in entering to this emerging area of practice? Yeah, well, I think one is to find out what other people are doing and learn lessons from them. There's a lot of people that are in this area. And don't be afraid to reach out and ask anyone questions. People are often really happy to share. And, you know, I don't want people to make the same mistakes I did. I want them, I want to be a person that says, hey, avoid this, go this way, right? This is what I learned. So, and that's what we did. We interviewed a lot of OTs that and PTs that were doing this work. Like, what'd you learn? What was the best way? Then I think step two, and I already mentioned, is find out the reimbursement models that are at your facility. You know, do they have values-based payments? Are there bundle payments? Because those are easy ways to kind of get your foot in the door. When it's fee-for-service, it's really hard to justify moving an outpatient therapist who's making revenue to primary care where it might be a a bundle payment and there's less payment to the therapy. So there's a business side to healthcare and many of us really don't understand it very well. And, you know, we don't have price transparency. I don't think I've ever would be able to tell a patient like even today, like what an evaluation costs. So we have to do some self-study and start to understand the business models. And, you know, it's just asking questions. I ask a lot of questions. I also, you know, I'm willing to try something and if it doesn't work, we modify it. And that's what we kind of did. We iterated, you know, we first blocked off 15 minutes every hour for the OTs and PTs to come up on the floor. That then didn't work. Um, We did pre-visit planning where we had them divert patients to therapy. That was successful. Maybe they don't need to see the physician again for the low back pain. Get them an appointment to OT. We did a lot of very intentional handoffs where we made a, the OT would come in just briefly to a regular visit, introduce themselves. Um, we actually were at the point where the physicians were walking patients into the therapy clinic. And, you know, my clinical experience, physicians would come in and kind of interrupt your therapy. No, this was literally like, hey, you should do occupational therapy. Here's the clinic. As I walk you out, let me show you. And 
I can't tell you how many patients were like, you guys know each other, you work as a team, that that made our collaboration evident to people and people came back and they valued what we had to offer. You know, and I think the other way is like, there are patients that we get stumped on and, you know, having different perspectives is, is a value. So again, go to team meetings, find out how you can start to show up and offer value and people start to see that. And then you don't have to invite yourself anymore. You'll be invited. So I hope those are some ideas. Oh, those are awesome ideas. Thank you so much for sharing. I know primary care sounds like it's such a good fit for occupational therapy and definitely has, has piqued my interest. I, I do want to ask more about reimbursement and billing. Uh, you've mentioned how that can sometimes be a barrier. How, how would you recommend practitioners learn about reimbursement and billing? How can they begin to find out whether or not that would be an obstacle in entering into a primary care setting or not? Well, I think it's really expanding the interprofessional team. There are healthcare administrators and business people that are at any kind of primary care clinic that understand that. And, you know, I just had to learn it. And I don't know if I know the best way to do that. Uh, It's complicated. It's a very complex system. It's changing a lot. There are multiple payers. And so you have to follow it closely. But there are people within every organization that are very aware of reimbursement models. So approaching them, but also reading yourself. I mean, there were times when we actually proposed codes to our system to say, hey, we can be reimbursed for this team code, but it's not in our electronic health record. Can we have it added? Advocacy is a really great way and and presenting that. But I would say there are people consider consider them part of your healthcare team. The business people are not the enemy. They understand how things work. And I have a I would say that the healthcare administrator in my previous work became a friend because I came to value his knowledge set. And without his advocacy and his ability to speak to the CEO or the people in a way that I wasn't prepared didn't have the capacity to do because I've just come from a different perspective and a different expertise. So include, become buddies with those people and learn from them and ask questions. And they care about patient care too. They want the best care. And so they obviously have to balance that with the bottom line, but there's no mission without uh, margin anyway. So I think, you know, becoming allies with those people and recognizing and then trying to understand is probably the best way. And that means expanding how we view the healthcare team beyond just our clinical people, but to include our business folks as well. Awesome. Thank you. That's excellent advice and a great recommendation. Joy, you were recently named to the National Quality Forum Rural Telehealth and Healthcare System Readiness Committee. This committee has the objective to create a measurement framework linking quality of care delivered by telehealth, healthcare system readiness, and health outcomes in a disaster. So a really important objective and something I think that is really applicable and and relevant today. Can you talk to us about this project? Yeah, so I'm really grateful to AOTA for nominating me to be on the committee. I feel very humbled to, you know, be there and I'm the only occupational therapist on that committee. And so This is something great our profession does and why being an AOTA member is really important to get clinicians at the table. This group is really interesting because I have learned just the diversity of telehealth delivery. You know, some of it's by phone and they're really thinking very um, hospital-based and primary care and not a lot about teletherapy, which I think is a growing field. And so, you know, to insert our opinion and make some of it's just education, letting people know, hey, like we do this too. It's not just physicians or nurse practitioners or physician assistants. There are other providers that do telehealth. The other thing that's really fascinating is the definition from the National Quality Forum of telehealth includes remote patient monitoring, 
And this is where occupational therapy also has a huge opportunity. Remote patient monitoring is technology that monitors people in their home and it essentially tracks their daily activities. So if you can think about trend data about someone's daily activities and notice something and have artificial intelligence or machine learning ping the healthcare provider when somebody has more bathroom visits, we could you know, really treat a UTI before it gets to the level of needing a hospitalization and delirium that you often see in older adults. So there's so much opportunity and occupational therapy can really play a role in helping people design and think about telehealth, not just in the sense of telemedicine, but what else can it be? And how do we help make it accessible during times where there's a pandemic for say, and people don't have access to care? The other thing that I think is really a great opportunity is to really, what are the best practices? And National Quality Forum's goal is to develop measures. So measures go into and get recommended to CMS, and that's how we measure quality. And so what is quality telehealth? You know, what does it mean? The acceleration of telehealth has been expansive because of COVID-19, but you know, what's it going to be in the future? And are we going to have a mixed method where we offer some telehealth and virtual care and some you know, in-person care, we really don't know. So it's really about thinking about the quality of that delivery, what are the best practices, and how we do that in rural areas where issues like broadband are a big barrier to accessibility to care. Joy, you mentioned, I already forget the, the term you used, uh, was it remote monitoring technology? Yeah, we're, yep, remote patient monitoring. So it's done lots of different ways, and there's a lot of companies that have products out. A lot of times they're siloed, so they're not, uh, feed, the data's not feeding into the electronic health record or even seen by the provider. Remote patient monitoring can be sensors, it can be video-based, there's a lot of different technology tools, but essentially it's in the home. Some of it's actually offered by health systems, like there's some programs in congestive heart failure where they monitor fluid, and if someone gains a lot of weight overnight, they probably have, are having an episode, you know, and then it can prevent hospitalization. So the goal of it is really to like develop patterns and track through technology. What is someone's daily routine? And then if they have a spike in blood pressure or they don't get out of bed at their normal time, the artificial intelligence pings a, a change in routine, and then intervention can be done based on that. Uh, that's amazing. The first thing I think of when I hear that is technology that already exists to help track sleeping schedules, heart rate, physical activity, things like that. How close would you say we are as a society to getting to a point where this remote patient monitoring becomes widespread and, and commonplace? Yeah, well, you're right. We all, a lot of us, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of people have wearables. A lot of people track their steps, you know, and I track my steps in my phone to keep my activity level up. And especially during the pandemic where it's really fallen off with having to sit on a lot more. And, you know, that data is not shared with my clinician. I still go in and like, they interview me, like, how much do you exercise? Well, I'm going to either be very honest. I'm going to maybe inflate that. I might underreport. you know, when it's human, there's a lot of, uh, I always talk, tell people, you know, there's a lot of feelings about our health behaviors, right? Versus there's actually objective data I have, but I could share that with my provider, but there's no way I can actually sync my phone to provide them that data. But that is really where interoperability comes into play. And we're collecting data that our healthcare providers aren't seeing. I don't even, I think some of us might not even be aware where that data is being housed and what's being, that data is being used for. I mean, you see this um, with the genetic companies where you are providing actually your genetic coding to a company for your ancestry, you're giving your genetic data to that company. So what they end up doing with that, you know, you really should read this, the fine print about the privacy and security because they now own your genetic data. To, it, it may say that. So, 
you know, and I'm not disparaging any of these technologies, but I think we just need to be more aware and figure out how we connect, you know, a wearable that uh, can track your heart rate. You know, if you're not reporting that to anybody, maybe you don't report an episode and then the health issue isn't addressed. So if the data doesn't have utility and no one's monitoring it, what's the value of collecting the data? That's such a great point. And it it really does make apparent how this technology could be used to improve service delivery in healthcare and specifically with occupational therapy, addressing habits, routines, and and roles of, of people's individual behaviors. Yeah. Imagine if we could like already have that. Like if somebody has remote patient monitoring, you as the clinician, before you do your occupational profile, you see what their daily sleep routine is, how much they, what they eat. I mean, this is actually some being collected from some of the patients, but we don't see it. So think about the patient experience when we would be able to look at that data proactively instead of just relying on a patient interview, which they may, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't floss as much as I probably tell my dentist I do, right? Like, (laughs) We sometimes are honest about our health behaviors and sometimes there's data. And when you get to older adults who are aging in place, like I don't blame them for not wanting to tell someone they had a fall, right? Like the fear of losing your home and telling your family, you know, I just got a text from my father-in-law that he got his first dose of the vaccination. And I'm so relieved because they are traveling out of town and they've been traveling and it'll be a lot more comfort to me knowing that they have their vaccine, right? So you know, for family members to have, you know, state, you know, a good state of mind and feel comfortable. I think there's just so much opportunity, but right now that data may not be shared. Nobody's seeing it. And it'll make the patient experience better when we have reliable data that can give us a comprehensive picture of a person's daily life. Absolutely. And this all becoming more practical and and implemented on a, on a wider scale also points to support the importance of increasing health information exchanges and having access to that type of data so so people can intervene and, and provide the necessary interventions to reach the best outcomes. Yeah. So for like the prescription drug monitoring program in our state, what's really wonderful about it is that if a patient comes in and they can't remember or self-report their medications, anybody can look it up. And that's super empowering for clinicians. One, so they don't prescribe something they don't need. They can help do medication reconciliation. But we also, it reduces healthcare errors. Somebody's not going to administer a drug that they have an allergy to, right? Or um, they're not going to give them a second prescription for something they already have. So there's a lot of opportunity to use the data to help make our clinical decisions much more informed. Thank you, Julie. I know we uh, got a little sidetracked from telehealth, but I I do want to continue our discussion about that and ask you what some guidelines to help practitioners use telehealth efficiently are. So I will disclose I'm not, I don't have a ton of experience with telehealth, like actually delivery more on the actual like process of like how it works and what the infrastructure is. Some of that is still really being discovered. And so I don't, I do um, have a colleague that designed and implemented telehealth teletherapy and a lot of our students had to kind of do it on their clinicals. I do know that it's very contextual to what you have to offer at your uh, facility. And so I think the door is open on what the best practices are. And I think we find that I, I was talking last night to a friend who does this and she was talking about how like sometimes she walks and is active and moving around to show patients like, hey, being active is important. And, you know, I thought, gosh, that's a really important best practice that I wouldn't have thought about. So 
I'm certainly not an expert there, but and I think that we need to seek more of this from clinicians actually doing this and, and learn from each other and maybe create a learning community about what are the best practices and who do you talk to if you're looking to get into this? And I think it's probably also based on the patient population, children in schools have a very much different experience. I know my daughter with her iPad learning, she actually like doesn't like the iPad now. It's not attractive to be on the iPad because she's been forced to be on the iPad, right? So I think how do we then like motivate and how do we think about using our bodies differently? There, I just think there's so much there that we have to discover. So I'm probably just not the right person to fully answer, but I do give it a lot of thought. And it sounds like you're encouraging creativity and problem solving and, and working with telehealth. Any innovative practice, you have to be creative. And that's what OTs are so good at. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I love creativity. I'm not an artist. I'm not one of those OTs that can create beautiful things, but I can, I can problem solve. And most OTs are very great at problem solving. And I think whatever is thrown at us, we can, we have the ability to figure out the best practices. And for me, at the end of the day, if it's about the patient, the modality doesn't matter so much. I'm going to work hard to make sure that patient has the best that I can give them so that they can live their life to the fullest. Joy, I know I'm feeling encouraged and motivated and ambitious to, to go out and, and learn more about these topics now um, and try and make a, a more of an impact in my, in my future career using technology and using health information exchanges um, and potentially telehealth as well. I want to ask you, what additional resources would you recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about these topics? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd say find people doing it. You know, AOTA has some great resources they put together. And I think people often underestimate how hard they work to put stuff together. And again, just like anything, find people are doing and ask them. Most people are really happy to share. Again, there's probably not one way and there never is really one way to deliver care. So, you know, finding people that have been there, done that, I always find that to be the most valuable. And if you go to AOTA conference or you read a, a publication, contact those people. Their contact information is on there. Ask them what they've learned, what they would do differently. I mean, never be afraid to have those conversations because you're undoubtedly going to learn something or get a perspective you didn't even think about. And when you talk to people that you can hopefully avoid pitfalls that they fell into. And so, I really always find that to be the most valuable. I love to learn from others so that I, one, can avoid mistakes, but also just like I'm always amazed at how different people view the world. And so how do we get those different perspectives? And, and a simple conversation can really teach you a lot. And I think we underestimate the value of that. Absolutely. Joy, I want to thank you again so much for your time and for being featured on this show. I know I've already learned a lot and we just have one question left. This is what we call the golden nugget segment. So I want to ask you if you could share one piece of knowledge or a recommendation to practitioners, what would you say? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, I think probably the most powerful thing you can have is self-awareness. Like know your strengths, know your weaknesses, know where you need other people and value both what you offer and what other people have to offer. We are just better together. And, you know, obviously that's a bias of mine, but, and I've been fortunate enough to have a lot, do some self-assessments and develop awareness. And one of the things I have to tell people is I'm a crockpot thinker. Like I need time to think about things and I want to be thoughtful. I don't want to make snap decisions. And if I have to, I can. And so I'm able to own that and articulate that to people and then give myself the permission to be my best self 
I think that's important. And that really allows you to live your vocation and your occupational life the best way you can, because you're aware of when you need to take time for self-care, how much sleep you need, what kind of leader you are, what your weaknesses are, and where you need other people to fill that in for you. And to me, that's the best way forward. Thank you, Julie. That's a a wonderful nugget to end on in an interview full of nuggets. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate the opportunity. And I just would want to say before we close that anyone's welcome to reach out to me and I'll share my email so that anyone can contact me. I'm also on LinkedIn and on Twitter at JoyOT. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.